Welcome to the UN and Organized Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. In this episode, we will continue looking into the UN negotiation process towards the legal instruments on cybercrime. So far in the series, we have looked back at the first couple of meetings that have taken place, and we've discussed some of the main issues and how they've played out in those meetings. In this episode, the Global Initiative's Head of Multilateral Affairs in New York, Summer Walker, will dive into some of the details with representatives of two of the most prominent non-governmental actors engaged in this process. From the private sector, Microsoft, and from civil society, Access Now. Hi, I'm Summer Walker. Today I'm joined by Nino Milicevic, who is the Director of Digital Diplomacy at Microsoft, and Raman Jeet Singh Chima, who is the Asia Policy Director and Senior International Counsel at Access Now, a leading global digital rights organization. And today we're going to discuss the ongoing UN negotiations to create a global instrument to address cybercrime or what is called formally countering the use of information and communications technologies for criminal purposes. In May of June of this year, the second meeting of the committee took place in Vienna. It was the first meeting that dealt with the potential substance of a treaty. Delegates addressed three main topics, general provisions, which includes issues such as the overall purpose, provisions on criminalization, and provisions on procedural measures in law enforcement. So I'd like to turn now to Raman and Nino to get their first impressions of the meeting. Now that it is wrapped up, how do you feel that the session went? Nino, let's start with you. Thank you very much, Summer. Thanks for having us. I I feel it was was a really interesting session on on, on many levels. And I think it starts with the fact that, that we actually had such a such a large group of countries represented in the room, that it was open to the multi-stakeholder community. And I feel, you know, if you ask me in general about, about the impressions of the overall meeting, I think that is just something that was really nice to see after such a long break to actually have people in person ready to talk substance and for the negotiations be open to, to both industry and civil society and to actually have the opportunity once the states had finished making their interventions to, to then be given the floor and, you know, provide, it, provide an industry perspective. In addition to, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, in addition to the intersessional sessions that are also happening between those substantive meetings. Um, so overall, I feel it was, it was also impressive to see just how prepared overall countries came to these sessions. For any given question that was addressed, 50, 60 plus countries took the floor and gave their gave their perspectives. It was good to see that the chair and the secretariat had 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 circulated guiding questions beforehand. In an ideal world, the, these could have been circulated perhaps a little bit sooner to delegates and, and the stakeholder community. But overall, I felt it was it went in a in a constructive direction and overall states engaged in a constructive conversation throughout those two weeks. Uh, was it all perfect? Nothing ever is really perfect, but I think we can we can cover this this in a moment. But overall, I felt it was it, it left a positive first impression, I think. Great. Thanks. And how about for you, Raman? Thanks, Summer. It's a pleasure to talk about this. And I think, you know, the words I take away from this substantive session was that it was quite surprisingly substantive. You saw a lot of details coming from states about where they agree, where they disagree, but also on the issues that they want to negotiate on. And as Neno mentioned, the guiding questions put across by states on, put across two states by the chair process, while not perfect, 
force states to really start talking about their exact positions. And you could sometimes even see that physically in the room where where representative teams of some of these national delegations were framing policy in consultation with headquarters or across ministries and departments on these complex issues. And I think what we're really, you know, seeing here is that we're now going into quite a lot of substance on what states believe should be international criminal provisions regarding cybercrime, the overall scope of the treaty, the manner and structure in which they want to see this treaty operate, and what sort of structures they hope to see in a couple of years from now this treaty goes ahead. And I think it's interesting because we're finally getting into that substantive issue. And what is interesting to me was, in fact, when states often agreed on certain issues, that that sometimes was where we perhaps want more safeguards, more concerns about human rights. And I think one of the things you could see there in the room in Vienna is that as you put policing and justice officials together from different countries, although they may have very strong differing viewpoints, and you could see a lot of geopolitical tension in the room for sure, but that on a surprising number of issues, they agreed. Sometimes those agreements are positive and good. Sometimes those agreements indicate perhaps consensus on issues where we could do better, where we could make improvements to better protect human rights. But that's our limited take from you know this initial session, I'd say, surprisingly substantive. And if I can perhaps just add a little bit more to something that 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 also was was interesting to see in terms of just perhaps also the overall framing of where this particular session and I think the next session the, that's going to be at the end of August, beginning of September will be just on different topics is I feel because this was the first time that states addressed the substance. They basically offered by and large very broad overarching positions where I feel they wanted to be on the record on a, on, on a lot of things that, that, that they care about. I feel that's going to be the same in the next session in, in New York. And in many ways, I feel the real work will then be for the chair and the secretariat to take all the positions that have been you know, thrown at the proverbial wall you know, at the last Vienna meeting and at the upcoming New York meeting, and then perhaps distill this into something a draft of some sort that could then in the January session be the basis for, for ongoing negotiations. By and large, even though, again, I, I agree with Raman as, as, he, as he described it, there was, there, was a, there was definitely a lot of discussions in the room and countries responding and reacting to each other. But to a large extent, they were also still talking at each other, not necessarily always with each other, which is, again, to be expected when, you, when, when states are throwing out their first substantive positions in, in such a long-term, you know, multi-year negotiation. Thanks both. I think that's very good description of sort of how the meeting took off in a very substantive way, which after it taking so long to get the process off the ground, it was a bit surprising and welcome as well. At the same time, some of the, the range of questions was a bit hard to see how they will pull it all together. And I think we should explain to our audience, as Nino was saying, that these two meetings, the upcoming one in August and September, and the one we just held, will be the basis for um, the committee drafting its first draft of an instrument. So I do wonder both, did you leave with a clearer sense of where states stand on particular areas, where they seem to be in disagreement after that meeting wrapped? I'll pass over to Raman first this time. I think it's interesting that what we can see clearly in the process is that there are disagreements, sometimes perhaps even fundamental disagreements about the scope of the treaty, about what all should be in it. And some of it just goes to the terminology of what it's called, right? We could see clearly the Russian Federation, the original proposer of this process, and a few other states still talk about how it should be 
a treaty to combat the criminal misuse of ICT. But I think what you could see eventually, in a sense, is that they seem to be at least a majority view forming. And I think there is a degree to which you can see across the geopolitical blocks, there will be some contestation about how wide a treaty this should be. And you'll have Russia, Iran, China, and others on one side a little bit asking for a fairly broad treaty. In fact, I probably correct myself there. China didn't come across so explicitly in favor of a very broad treaty, but maybe it'll come out in favor of that later. We saw India asking for a surprisingly broad treaty and broad scope of treaty by itself, but again, not necessarily always coordinated with Russia and other actors there. And of course, we saw several Western states call for a very specifically limited treaty. And I think what we're going to end up seeing, and I think there was some degree of majority view, not necessarily consensus in the end, was a treaty that will have a mandate on criminalization that is set, setting certain universal crimes that will be limited to core cyber crimes, you know, computer intrusion to networks and what you would regard as classic cyber dependent crimes, particularly network intrusion crimes, with perhaps particular cyber-enabled crimes also added to it, namely computer fraud of a certain scale or of a certain nature, as well as a high likelihood that child sexual abuse material, CSAM, might also be included in the treaty as a particularly egregious cyber-enabled crime that would be covered by it, and potentially as well some appetite for including issues relating to intimate imagery, as well as other matters of essentially you know, material online that might target women or other vulnerable communities. I think we saw agreement that, or a simple majority view in favor of that. And I think what we also saw was some agreement across states that the parts on cooperation in this treaty will not be limited only to these core cyber crimes. It will be broader. So that was what was interesting to me, that while there's still disagreement about the scope of the treaty, a majority view seemed to be forming. And the other seemingly majority view in the room was that the cooperation parts of this treaty will not be limited only to these core cyber crimes. It will be broader. And perhaps if I can just add, add a few things, and I agree with, with Raman's assessment here. I do think overall it's, it's still early days. In, I think we need to be realistic and, and acknowledge that it is early days in this negotiations. I think the geopolitical blocks are there. They're forming. They're, they have, to nobody's surprise, always you know always been there. They'll, they'll, they'll likely be there throughout the negotiation. And I think a couple of the, the interesting things that Raman also mentioned that I think for us that, that took away is, is, is exactly the, the, the point of what kind of a majority is forming and is consensus actually going to be possible on, on any particular issue? I think that is, those are questions that are too early to, 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 answer, to answer today, but I think those are things that as the negotiation continues are going to be really interesting to monitor because the modalities of the ad hoc committee do not necessarily mandate a consensus decision. The states have so far agreed that they are going to work towards consensus. But ultimately, I think when push comes to shove on those on those more contentious issues going forward, I think that's where I feel some of the most difficult um, negotiations will will lay ahead. I think from our perspective, and again, to, to nobody's surprise, we, we, we do hope that the convention will have a narrow focus, that it will focus on on cyber dependent crimes, um, that it's not going to duplicate things that are in, included in other instruments already. And I think, again, just looking ahead, I feel there's, there's a lot will depend on, on the kind of draft that's going to be used in January for the negotiations going forward. Yeah. And I mean, you both touched on this a little bit already, but um, is there anything you want to add sort of from the perspectives of your areas of work? Did you find certain aspects to be going in the right direction, other areas that were more worrying? Anything you'd like to add in that respect? 
I do think it's very important to like note the value of just everyone in the room being able to hear clearly from states on what they wanted, because I think that sort of recognition that there are significant concerns coming from many states, particularly in the global south, is important for actors to recognize. And even there, as we go into the details, thanks to some of the quest- guiding questions posed by the chair in this process, to recognize that even states who are asking for a lot of cooperation or perhaps major new international legal harmonization that they recognize that they can be abused. I think there were very few states that sort of shied away from the abuse problem, recognizing that, you know, even police actors or other other governments sometimes might misuse these powers. I think what I am still concerned about a little bit is, what, you know, what you heard me talk about earlier, right? The, the degree of sometimes, you know, commonality or consensus, particularly across officials in the prosecutorial services, in in police departments, in ministries of law and justice, sometimes on increasing powers for law enforcement or trying to secure enhanced international cooperation for law enforcement. I want to hear more detail from them on those safeguards. And I think, again, we know that a lot of those concerns around articulating them right now is because states, they don't have those safeguards written up. They're they're trying to figure what will work in this process. Some other states are more generally staying at the human rights level to say that there should be specific, you know, exceptions or carve-outs to say that if something is not in line with human rights commitment, states can choose not to implement it. But I think what we what we try to articulate is if you create a major new international legal mechanism that facilitates, for example, increased data sharing and increase access to what we call protected information across nation states, that also is an opportunity when you can push for judicial or other, you can push for legal standards to be improved. And one element of that is perhaps the role of the judiciary in this, right? And we saw some actors talk about that in the sidelines. Occasionally, people mention that on the main floor. But that's one thing we want to hear more from, you know, more concrete discussions around safeguards, particularly on issues about access to data, investigatory powers, and what concrete mechanisms like that will be in the treaty. And lastly, I, I do want to talk a little bit then the content, you know, related issues, specifically on the scope of the treaty. I think there is a lot of you know, merit in what states have talked about, that they want to address issues relating to child sexual abuse material, as well as other issues such as intimate partner imagery. I think that one of the dangers is that if you open up the scope of this treaty to to include cyber-enabled crime, that it's very easy to keep adding things in there. And I think some of the states saw that. You could see them recognize and say, we recognize even by our own proposals, we're adding in points here that other states may want to really add and create a massive list so we have to be cautious. Uh, I think, for example, some of the very specific concerns raised by the representative of the European Union as one of the regional blocks there was helpful as a sort of reality check. Because I think once you open up the scope of this, it's very easy to keep adding things in there. But let's wait and watch. And I do hope that states also take some of the suggestions on board made by some of the participants to the process saying that even if you want to combat other egregious harms, this is a start. You should do a limited start and perhaps you could add additional protocols later. Perhaps you can more clearly indicate how existing international legal instruments don't already help address or combat some of these harms you're talking about. Thanks, Raman. Uh, Nino, do you want to add anything? Sure. Yes, thanks. And I, I, I concur with, with, with what Raman just outlined. A couple of things perhaps to, to, to add from, from our side in terms of stuff that we're looking at that we're 
paying particular attention to also that we're watching with you know some concern as it's depending on how how it's going to develop i mean we do not want to end up with two competing treaties or multiple competing treaties right so i think this the legal harmonization piece the new un convention not competing with existing instruments such as the budapest convention i think that's that's going to be important the the human rights privacy data protection data access all those issues kept coming up throughout the, the the two weeks the relevant safeguards seeing how that plays out i think is something that that warrants very close attention another piece that that from our side that that we've been arguing to not be a part of this treaty is this idea of using it and i think raman mentioned it earlier to basically use it as the be all end all treaty for everything that has anything to do with 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 cyber um, including you know content regulation or or industry regulation i feel that is not something that that would be conducive to a reaching consensus and b being being actually a helpful cybercrime treaty um, which again to come full circle to what i said earlier much of this really will depend on how states ultimately decide to to scope this and if they choose to follow uh, to pursue at least initially a, a narrow scope and and don't just uh, focusing on cyber pendant crimes and and definitely not include things just because a a computer was was used to to oversimplify it right so i think that is just something that does warrant quite a lot of monitoring going forward and let's see how 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 it all shakes out yeah raman do you want to jump back in and i just want i wanted to address that what i found interesting definitely also in the process is that even though, again, it is very state-dominated, it is very focused, of course, on core coordination around crime issues, but we are hearing them listen to key constituencies and key broader issues. And in that, for example, I think the fact that they talked about the role of cybercrime instruments on the security researcher and global information security communities is a very positive step. The fact that States took it up. The chair brought very specific questions on that issue of how will some of these provisions impact security researchers? Are there exceptions or alternate legal formulations we can craft that would better protect them? That is a great first step. It's not the be-all, end-all by any degree. In fact, as you could see, there was a lot of disagreement on that. Even sometimes, as you could see, very telling comments or concerns raised even by, you could quote, you know, quote unquote, Western states on that issue. But the fact that it came up, the fact that there was a deeper digging into those issues is extremely positive. One of the criticisms that have been made of some of the other UN cyber processes, including the open-ended working group, is that it tends to be, as someone joked, a space that's really very in of interest to diplomats and international law professors, less so directly for practitioners in the space. It's taken a lot of effort to get substantive even concerns relating to cybersecurity professionals be covered in the OEWG process. And I think there was a lot of worry here that this would become a completely law enforcement or criminal justice treaty that would actually make it riskier for security researchers and indirectly undermine global cybersecurity as a whole. The fact that that open conversation happened, states articulated their viewpoints, and several states even said, we are open to figuring out how to better address this, is a great initial step because it's showing the value of engaging the process of states listening and then trying to craft solutions that might address it. The fact that, for example, some states said, maybe we don't want a catch-all safe harbor provision for security research, but we're open to drafting language around criminal intent regarding cybercrime provisions that would help shield them from being perhaps targeted, persecuted, or subject to chilling effect. So that's a good positive thing that we did see even fairly early in this process. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example of sort of how they got into the the details on very important issues. 
Nino, do you want to jump in before we switch over to the intercessional? Yes, please. And uh, and again, I, I do agree that it's on two things, actually. I do I do agree that's a good thing. And using the example that, that Raman mentioned, that, that states talked about this, and I'll, I'll segue in a moment to the value of, of, of having not just states and in the room to discuss questions like this. But I do want to mention that, again, even though it was obviously good that, that they did talk about these types of issues also in detail, I think we do have to acknowledge that there is significant disagreement, and, and Raman indicated that too. I think there is significant, we saw significant disagreement among countries in terms of, you know, what kind of safeguards or what kind of provisions they, they might they might want to see. So I feel that is still, it is still early days to see how this ultimately will will shake out, but it's definitely something that that's going to be important to look at. And I think that's why it's also so important to have the, the multi-stakeholder community, to have industry and civil society in the room when you discuss questions such as this, as in so that, so that perhaps we and others can introduce some some much needed reality, if you wish, how certain provisions, if they were to go a certain way, would actually affect cybersecurity researchers. Because you don't want to have a treaty, an, an, an outcome here where the treaty actually makes, where it makes cyberspace less secure rather than, rather than more secure, because it goes against how security researchers actually do their work. So I feel that is something that that's going to be important to to look at going forward. But the fact that the modalities, and I do want to take this opportunity to also make a plug for those specific modalities of the ad hoc committee, which are open to meaningful uh, participation from industry, from from civil society, more open than pretty much any other UN dialogue on cyber related issues that we're currently seeing. So I feel that has been something that 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 we've been very appreciative of. And I feel that has contributed to how those discussions and, and why those discussions were as constructive um, as they were. And it would be great to see future UN processes that deal with cyber-related issues um, adopt similar uh, modalities going forward that allow for meaningful multi-stakeholder participation. That's great. Thank you so much. I mean, I think the point on safeguards is really critical because that's really where the devil is in the details about digital rights, human rights are protected within the treaty, as opposed to sort of a reference at the beginning to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we would hope for as well. But, you know, it's really in the actions that are allowed by this treaty where it comes into play. That's that's great that we're sort of focusing in on those areas. And it was brought up by, by many states in different ways. But I just want to switch gears quickly. Shortly after the meeting, they held a multi-stakeholder intercessional and you both attended and were quite active. For those of the audience who don't know, this was an opportunity for an informal discussion among outside stakeholders and government representatives. So it was a bit more informal meeting, more of a back and forth conversation. And this intercessional looked ahead to the issues that will be covered in September, which are international cooperation, technical assistance, um, prevention, and I just wondered, what were your impressions of this meeting following right after the, the formal meeting? Raman, over to you. I think the intersessional meeting process is something that is one of those things that hopefully will be slowly improved and the kinks worked out. It's a useful space to be able to hear from a variety of stakeholders on these issues, including the sort of technical experts who unfortunately are far too often don't get space to be able to sufficiently intervene in the main session. I think there are many things that still need to be addressed in it. Um, namely, the timing, of course, of this intercession was 
a little bit problematic because it is right after the main session. And in effect, what happened was a lot of the core key delegates from national delegations, for example, had already were flying back home or flying back elsewhere, weren't there. There was, I would say, much more limited participation from nation states in the process as the main sessions were. And I think one of the like dynamics we did see was that at least for this perhaps intersessional, there was still a little bit of a sense that it was a space being provided right after the main session was done in order to also keep folks happy who had not been able to otherwise get sufficient space to be able to intervene or help aid in the discussions for the main session. And what I mean by that is that the sort of technical experts, civil society community and others who had often asked for time to speak and be able to intervene during some of the deliberations of the main session weren't able to or the modalities made it a bit difficult, for example, as some of you or your you know listeners you know may or may not be aware, the chair had very clearly indicated that non-governmental stakeholders in the process should not be intervening on the very specific guiding questions that they had framed because you know they wanted to respect you know their sort of line that oh we don't want non-governmental stakeholders involved in drafting but in reality that made it quite tricky and more importantly says simply put time wasn't often given enough to non-governmental stakeholders and others to intervene and there are a range of other procedural improvements they need to make and i think the intersessional needs to not be seen as sort of a, you know an additional space for that but perhaps more as a space for experts to be able to come in and others to take very frank questions on issues that the delegates and others may not be aware of. And I think that's the important thing, that intersessionals cannot replace true improvements in the multi-stakeholder process for the main session. That needs to be clearly understood. With that, there's a lot that you can do with intersessionals. And I think it's also interesting that at least the next one, perhaps will there will be a gap. So there will be more time and it won't be really the sort of spillover space we saw this time. But again, others may have seen it differently. I, I looked at it from the fact that I actually saw a lot of folks struggle to be able to engage with the intersessional in the same manner that they were trying to engage or prioritize the main session. Yeah, those are those are great points. Nino, you were on a panel and you had rapid fire questions coming your way. So I wonder what was your impression of this intersessional? So from, from, from our perspective, and it, it's, it's funny that you referred to the rapid fire, I, I felt the Q&A after my session turned into a ask Nino anything situation, which, which I thought was, was interesting. But overall, this one, as well as the previous intersessional, which I think from our side, Microsoft attended virtually because I think because a, a bunch of us caught COVID at the time when, when it occurred. So we were only dialed in this one. We were able to participate in person. And I hear Raman on the criticisms or, or the, the things that, that I feel that, that he felt could be improved going forward. I do want to point out when we compare it to other existing UN processes in this space, I do feel that it's, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor to have these intersessionals. And I feel overall the modalities are more inclusive than what we're seeing in other processes. So I think, you know, to, to give a fair assessment, I think we need to, we need to keep that perspective also in mind. The way we approached this in general was, I agree, the timing was, was, was what it was. It was difficult to shift immediately from focusing for two weeks on, on very specifically one set of topics to then basically go straight into the next intersessional that looked at a completely different set of questions that are now going to be addressed in the August-September meeting. I feel it's probably going to be interesting to see how the with the gap with the next intersessional, to what an extent that, that will be mitigated. But I do feel that because it happened right after the main session, at least some states did stay the weekend and we had some, gov some 
experts from capital still in the room. Not a whole lot. I feel that that should that that should also be said. But I feel countries were dialed in um, and listened to the to the presentations online. I feel the the real value of the intercessional is to have large panels where industry and civil society from across the globe can offer a whole broad set of opinions on the cybercrime treaty. That does mean that you really do get a very broad gamut of positions that can be both good and bad because you do sometimes get positions that haven't followed the process super closely and that are that are a little bit out there. But I, I feel in the it is a good idea to err on the send on the side of inclusivity. And I do feel overall that it's that that having this mechanism is a good thing, largely because also in terms of scope, you have to imagine basically the way they are set up is you get three hour blocks to discuss any of these topics, which essentially means anybody who wants to take the floor really does get a chance, which, as Raman mentioned, may not necessarily happen for the stakeholder community in the the, the substantive sessions. But both of those to complement each other, I feel are, are a worthwhile endeavor going forward. And I feel from our side, we'll definitely keep prioritizing both the, the, the substantive and the intercessionals. Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's true, a bit of space between the two and maybe front loading it before the fo- the next meeting does make a bit more sense. I mean, one thing we noticed was that more external groups seem to travel to Vienna for the two-day intercessional as the delegates were sort of leaving from the formal session. And I think you've you've both pointed that out. So hopefully that can be sort of remedied. So I just wanted to thank you both so much for joining us. In September, we're looking ahead to the next negotiation session, which I'm sure you both will be involved in. Um, If there's any points you want to make sort of leading up to that, we'd be happy to hear them. Otherwise, hopefully we can check in with you following the September meeting. I can just jump in to say I think what's very important, of course, is giving states very specific suggestions and coming to language on some of these safeguard conversations and the international cooperation part. So I'm really looking forward to the next substantive session to go, how it goes into that, what states bring up there. Is there any like radical other suggestion that states bring up in the meantime? That is really an important discussion, the exact form in which states want cooperation to take place, the sort of cooperation they want, then safeguards as well. And of course, ultimately, and I think it's very important to keep, you know, reminding people that it's a very ambitious timeline and process, but it seems like they're going to try and meet it in terms of the fact that the substantive session that will happen next year around January would then have a zero draft version of the treaty. And I, as you know, that's really when like it really becomes very intense in terms of negotiation, discussion and where it's going. And it's very important, therefore, I think for us to see what sort of exact language people are throwing around in the next session, because ultimately all of that is going to be absorbed and then articulated in this very tricky zero draft process. And I think as you know, for many states as well, they're taking part in this process, but they've all sometimes on the sidelines or elsewhere given that sort of frank view, right? Saying that we are taking part, we are being constructive, but if the final version of the treaty is not good enough, we may vote against it or we may not sign and ratify. So I think that's very important for us to keep in mind for the entire process. I'm sometimes accused of being an optimist regarding its conduction. And I think, yeah, as you know, very importantly mentioned, the modalities in many ways are an improvement on other UN cyber processes. But I think the subtle thing in the room, of course, that's left left from states is the final, you know, proof of the pudding is, you know, in the form that we get it. And if it's not good enough, we're definitely not going to take a bite. We may choose not to sign up to it, or we may even vote against the final adoption of it as a UN treaty. So ultimately, that's really the test that we're going to see in January, what sort of zero draft comes across and how states respond to it. 
Thanks, Raman. Those are those are great points. Looking forward. Um, over to you, Nino. Thanks, and I, I do want to you know perhaps just close us out on on on, on two points. Number one, I, I feel it's not quite early days anymore, even though I feel I use the term I've, I've used the term before, but it's it is still early-ish, and I feel we're looking at a at a multi-year process still still ahead of us. But you know, to all the listeners out there, I feel especially if you're from industry, if you're from civil society, if it would be good to, to, to follow this process, to try and be involved, whether, you know, particularly also in the intercessionals with their more open modalities for that type of a dial-in participation. I feel it is a treaty that when it comes to pass is, is going to be potentially impactful to, to a whole bunch of stakeholders out there. So I feel it would be really great to see even more interest from industry and from civil society as these negotiations continue. And I think the second point that I'd like to make building on on what Raman um, just mentioned, I do feel exactly, and I feel we've covered it a bunch of times, a lot will depend on the zero draft that we will likely be looking at in January. The negotiation geeks among us are looking forward to line by line or paragraph by paragraph negotiations on this. So I think those will be those will be exciting times. But ultimately, again, I think the, the, the outcome that, that, that we want to avoid is to have a situation where whatever comes out of this process is to look at, look at the worst case scenario to, is completely not in line with, not harmonized with, with other existing instruments out there. And I feel that would be a really unfortunate outcome. So I feel for, for, for the states that are involved, for the for industry, for civil society that are part of these negotiations, I feel that is something that collectively we need to try and work against. And I feel the focus to, to achieve this would really be, and this is where the onus really is on the chair, is to have a draft that focuses on areas where consensus is reasonably possible or likely. And I feel if, if that occurs, I think we're, we'll, 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 be in, we'll be in good shape. But again, ultimately, we'll know, we'll know more in, in January when, when that meeting occurs. It's going to be exciting. That's a great point to end on. Thank you both so much for joining us, and we look forward to continuing to follow this process with you. Mm-hmm.